And uh, so let's stand, Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. And uh, um, this morning, um, that's right, we have um, Deborah who's gonna be reading for us. Ephesians chapter four, and we're gonna read verses one through 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had, to, that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, we are so thankful that we have the privilege of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that um, you have revealed so much of yourself, Lord, to us so that we can have a greater understanding of who you are, that we can have a, a greater understanding, Lord, of, of what you are doing in our lives and doing through us. And Lord, help us today um, not simply to be selfish with your word, thinking it's just something to apply to my life, independent, Lord, of your purposes in that life. Lord, help us to see the breadth of what you're seeking to do uh, through individuals that are, that are the church, Lord, for your glory. And I ask, Lord, that today that you would, you would allow me to be your messenger. I'd just be the mouthpiece, Lord, for your truth. That you would, um, uh, through your Holy Spirit, work mightily in our lives, Lord, to, to strengthen us to um, convict us, to empower us, and Lord, to give us, uh, Lord, a mindset that will be in conformity to your purposes. So Lord, we ask for your help, and uh, Lord, we trust that you will provide in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a question, and I want to ask you whether or not you're going to agree with this statement. Here's the statement. We live in an unethical society? What would be your answer to that question? Do we live in an unethical society? I'm hearing an answer coming from a lot of people. And the answer, of course, likely is yes. But why do you consider our society to be unethical? Let me throw out some ideas, and there's probably lots more that we could add to this list. 
Is it because you see and hear leaders that don't tell the truth or are not trustworthy or try to cover up their behavior? In other words, it's in the public realm, so you see the stuff that's going on. Is it because so many people are trying to scam you? I mean, it's almost, you're almost afraid to pick up your phone anymore, right? And check your email, especially if it's in the spam folder. Um, is it because you see or hear about people taking advantage of organizations or health insurance companies or innocent children or the elderly? You hear a lot more about that kind of stuff. Is it because there has been uh, so many bad examples of religious institutions across the board failing to address firmly the issues of sexual misconduct, embezzlement, or blatant hypocrisy from their leaders? Uh, and I'm sure we could go down the list of saying, you know, these are things that, that really mark um, uh, an unethical society. Well, the next question would be this, and what does it mean to be ethical? What does it mean to be ethical? And, and, and there's, a <clears throat> there's a study that was, that was done by Gallup, and here's the question that's asked, and I'm just gonna give you some of, the, some of the highlights of the answer to this question. Please tell me, this is the question, please tell me how you would rate the honesty and ethical standards of people in their different fields. Very high, high, average, low, very low. Highest on the list, highest ethical standards are nurses. So if you're a nurse, you're in a good group of people. All right, we trust you. We trust you're gonna bring us the right medicine when we need it and to care for us when we need it. Next on the list are pharmacists. That was kind of strange. You know, but then you trust the pharmacist is giving you the right thing, right? You know, I really need to know, and what about this? And they give you the right stuff. Then there's kind of like a grouping here. Grade school teachers, medical doctors, uh, military officers. They all kind of fit into one category. Um, then there's the next category, a little, 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 little less ethical in the eyes of people. Um, would be police officers clergy, daycare providers, it's kind of a strange one, right? Um, judges, I would hope you would consider a judge to be pretty ethical. Now we're going down the list even further. Now we're kind of, the, 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 the lines of, of votes for these areas get smaller and smaller. Um, nursing home operators, uh, don't, don't make comments, because you might be sitting next to someone who does that and by no means does that mean if you do any of these things that you are unethical, but it's interesting here. Um, going down the list further here, auto mechanics, bankers, local office holders, business executives, newspaper reporters, um, lawyers. Um, I thought we were gonna have to wait a long time before we got to that one, right? <laughs> TV reporters, advertising uh, practitioners, um, going further down, state office holders, car salespeople. I mean, they got 9% out of a possible 100. Okay? 8% members of Congress. And then less than that would be lobbyists. Now, 
The, the, the reason to, to, to share that is to say that there is an attitude in our culture as to you know, what ethics is and what is ethical and what is not ethical. And um, according to Webster's Dictionary, ethics is the discipline dealing with what is good and bad and with moral duty and obligation. It's a set of moral principles, a theory or system of moral values. It's the principles of conduct governing an individual or a group, a guiding philosophy, a consciousness of moral importance. And that's kind of like a formal definition. But let me, let me present ethics a little differently to you from our perspective, maybe from our country's perspective, and call it the history of ethics. Early on in our society, enough people had theological convictions that motivated their ethical living. Then, in future generations, the ethical living remained, but was void of any theological understanding or conviction. In other words, the impact of theology on society was great at the beginning, but then people just behaved that way because that's just what mom and dad did, and that's just what the church teaches. But it was void of any theological basis or understanding. Okay? And I would say that today, primarily and by and large, we are living in a culture whose ethics are distinct from and run contrary to our heritage. So the ethics that are void of theology now do no longer reflect any kind of line back to a theological position or foundation or understanding. And so primarily this has happened because generations have ignored the foundation of their ethics. Now, um, most people now know really nothing of theology and as a result have no basis for ethical living. So the reality is that people in our society are actually very ethical. It's just that the foundation for their ethics has changed. Right? They're functioning from a different set of values, from a different set of beliefs. And so what we have is we have conflicting foundations that produce conflicting behaviors. Okay? Now you may not like their principles, you may not agree with their convictions, but they do have a foundation. You might even call it a worldview. And so what once seemed to be ingrained in our culture as a foundational principle for ethics has now been replaced by a different principle that is driving a new ethic. Now friends, why, why is that so important? It's so critically important because of what Paul is doing here. And he does it not just here, but he does it in the book of Romans in chapter 12. He also does it in Colossians chapter three. He, he finishes up a, a section of deep theology explaining God, explaining how we relate to God. And he moves from this theology to what we might consider a more practical side of things. And so it's important that we recognize that as believers, our ethics are rooted in our theology. And it's important for Paul before he gets to the, this is how you are to live, to understand what God has done and who he is 
and how you relate to him. And that is critically important for Paul. So before we all get angry at the ethics of our culture today, as we draw our attention here to to, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we will see that this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. And here, here for three chapters, Paul has been laying this foundation. Let me just highlight it again. And if you haven't been with us, this will kind of help reinforce what we're about to do. First of all, that, that God is sovereign and has called, predestined, adopted, redeemed, and forgiven his children. All right? Giving them hope of an inheritance that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he has seated them in the heavenly places with Christ, in Christ. Again, that that statement is is packed with meaning. And we see that a number of times in chapters 1 through 3. We also see that he has has prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would see and understand the many incredible aspects of the gospel. And so the the point and the purpose of this letter, you might say, is for the readers to to be able to bask in the glory of who who God is and what he has done, but also to see the the many ways that the gospel filters into their lives. And he's praying that their eyes would be opened, that they would see that to be true. And then the fourth thing, the last thing here, is that he he revealed to them God's incredible grace in bringing them into the body of Christ. If you remember, he brought them out of, uh, um, from, from death and he raised them to life by grace. Those who were alienated, he reconciled by virtue of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so together, both Gentile and Jew were brought together to be, God, uh, to be created by God, to be this new man that is called <clears throat> the church, the body of Christ. And so here we are now in chapter 4. He's laid out his theology. He's laid out this foundation, and now he's going to spring from that foundation and move us in directions that help us understand how we are to live. So we can call this a hinge, so to speak, a transitional time. What's, What's hard about this particular sermon is that we are going to be basically introducing a whole bunch of things. We're introducing now chapters four through six. Boom, there's one introduction. And that's what I'm trying to paint out here, all right? Secondly, I'm gonna introduce verses one through 16, which have to do with unity. And then we're gonna introduce just as, you know, verses one through three. And so there's a lot of kind of laying a foundation before we actually get into the meat of the text. So, so just kind of follow along as I paint the big picture and draw you down to where we are. So here we have this, this hinge or this transition uh, that is marked out here by this word, therefore. So what is understood, uh, or say what, is, uh, what he is about to say is based on and to be understood in light of what has just been said. That's the idea of this word, therefore. Look back, and, and looking back gives you the, the awareness of what's ahead. Okay, so you look back at chapter one through three, and that helps you understand how to interpret chapters four through six. Again, look at verse one of chapter four. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the pastor, Paul, is in prison right now, and he is pleading with the the Ephesian church and the churches around that area to transition, to transition from doctrine to duty, from knowledge to application, 
from knowing who they are in Christ to how they should live um, now because they are in Christ. He's emphasizing that all ethics are theologically motivated. Theology motivates application. And he uses the image now of walking to describe this new life in Christ. Um, this, this is motivated by our position in Christ. So this, this ability for us to walk is motivated by our understanding of where we sit. Okay, and so there's these images of, of I might say, bodily position that we have in this book. We have in chapters one through three this idea of being seated in, in, the, in the heavenlies with Christ. Now, in chapter four, verse one, he's gonna be talking about walking. And the idea of that walking is, this is a, this is a, a word to describe your life now, walking, moving, and, and, and living with Christ. So we have the sitting, we have this walking, primarily chapter four, five, and six, and the first part of chapter six. And then the last part of chapter six, this is the classic passage where we're standing against the schemes of the devil. So there's this sitting, there's this walking, and there's this standing image that we have in this particular book. So to walk worthy is to live one's life out of the truth that we are in Christ. So it's not an attempt now to merit God's favor or his approval. It simply means that our walk or our living should be fitting, should be appropriate, should um, be in accordance with the gospel of God's grace which he has revealed to us in chapters one through three. So when we're made alive in Christ and reconciled to him through the gospel, we entered a new family that has its own worldview and its own set of life principles that flow out of that worldview. The foundation of the gospel is now lived out by the ethics that flow out of that gospel. So in other words, the new man called the church is to live out of its doctrinal convictions revealed by God in his word. That's what he's saying. This new church is to live out its doctrinal convictions revealed by God in his word. So to walk worthy is to embrace the, the foundational truth of God's word, his gospel, as the basis of my new world view. If you're a Christian, you have a world view. The question is, what is that worldview? How do you see the world? If you are doing what Paul wants you to do, your worldview is seen by your position in Christ. How you live, the basis for your living, how you view the world, how you approach things like marriage and parenting and so on and so forth is lived out of the foundational truths that now press forward and, and help you see how you are to do those things. So to live my life out of the set of, of principles revealed by Christ through, um, uh, through uh, the Apostle Paul. So this brings us then next to this, this next word, unity. Um, verses 1 through 16 are kind of a, a general setup even for the rest of the book. And the emphasis there is on unity. And I want you to see this as we continue to lay the foundation here and kind of whittle down to our passage. So Paul begins this section by focusing on the subject of unity in the body of Christ. He reveals for us 
attitudes for unity, which is what we're going to focus on today, theology for unity, which is what we'll focus on next week, and then gifts for unity, which we'll focus on after that. Okay? Now, it's very easy for us to kind of you know, blow through these verses and get to the good pits you know, of the gifts, but, but what he's emphasizing here is that to be God's people requires that we look at who we are in Christ, and if we look at who we are in Christ, it naturally flows out that there are going to be certain attitudes that we have about our life in Christ, about our being seated with him in the heavenlies, about our relationship together as co-people who have that same reality. We're the church together. We're not the church because we created it. We're the church because God created it. And God created it by drawing us from all different places, all different nationalities, and bringing us together. And this local church here, bringing us together to be a family, to be a body together. So there are attitudes, there's theology, there's going to be gifts. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so this passage reveals some, some upward attitudes necessary to reach the goal of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So this is where these few verses are heading. They're attitudes that every believer is urged and commanded to eagerly or diligently pursue. Now, eager is a strong word. It's not just a suggestion. Uh, Paul's pleading with them to, to, to listen to what he's saying and to live their lives rooted in verses or chapters one through three. It means it's going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of diligence to walk in Christ, to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ. And that doesn't take place passively. I mean, passively, it's just going to happen to me along the way. It's like, oh, man, yeah, oh, I'm getting, oh, I'm growing in Christ. Isn't this great? No, it doesn't happen like that. How it happens is with the diligence that we apply ourselves to. It doesn't mean that we're more united. You can't be more united in Christ than you are now. What unites us together is the fact that we are in Christ. Now, what's important for us to notice here, and please, I want you to notice here, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice that this unity that we're called to is not a unity that we create. It's a unity that we are called to maintain, which means it's already present Okay? So when we're talking about let's all gather together and let's, let's unite as the body of Christ, we don't have to. The true church is already united. Okay? And oftentimes those cries for unity are really cries for a whittling down of theology so that we can agree at the common base denominator. And what happens with that is you have this weak kind of empty gospel. And friends, we want to be careful that what unites us are the realities that Paul has revealed to us in chapters 1 through 3. So we are united. And if we're united people, then we should work together to maintain that unity. It's like a team that gets together and says, all right, you are this team. Let's pick a team, all right? Let's just say it's the A's. You are the A's. You are the Oakland A's. 
All right, fine. A few fans here. Very good. All right. All right, imagine you are part of that Oakland A team. The fact that you are an Oakland A means that you're an Oakland A. You're already united. You already have the uniform on. So now you've got to think Oakland A's. You're not thinking, where are the Giants playing this weekend? You're concerned about, where am I playing? Unless you're playing the Giants that weekend, right? You're a part of that team. So in the same sense, we are the church. We are already united. Now, if we are already united, how do we maintain that unity? That's where he's going with this. So this is a unity that we're called to preserve with eagerness. And we're going to see here four attitudes then that maintain our unity. Four attitudes now that maintain our unity in Christ. And friends, this is so, so critical for the church at large and for the church here, Gateway Bible Church. These four attitudes are so foundational and, and so, I want to say, important in every way. They're pervasive to everything that we're going to experience as a church that we need to pay attention to what Paul is saying here. He brings this up first. And if he's bringing this up first, it doesn't mean that what he brings up in chapter six is unimportant. It just means that he's getting this out saying, this is, this is the package for everything I'm gonna be talking about here. So the first attitude is this. It's the, it's, it's the attitude of humility. And by the way, I wrote the book on humility and you can get it next week sometime, just want you to know that. Okay. It's a joke. Although, you know, there are people who have written books on humility and you wonder, you know, do you sign your, your name correctly or, you know, I mean, I don't know, but anyway. Humility. Humility does not mean that you see yourself as some pitiful excuse for humanity. Humility doesn't mean that <clears throat> somehow you see yourself as, as some lowlife above whom all other human beings exist, or some piece of refuse at the bottom of the human pile. That's not the idea here at all. It's not this kind of false humility that, that maybe a, 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 a secular culture wants to kind of impose. This is completely different. This is a humility that means a lowliness of mind. It means to think less of yourself. And... In thinking less of yourself, you're putting the wishes of others before yourself. The ideas of humility were somewhat foreign in the Greco-Roman culture. It was a word that was used um, only in the context of talking about slaves. So a non-slave, a free man did not have in that culture the capacity to even comprehend this idea. Now the Jews, they had this idea of humility because in the Old Testament, humility is, is, a, is a word that is, or is an idea that is expressed as part of God's, uh, God's covenant community. But in the Greco-Roman world, in which Ephesians was, or the, Ephes, the, church, or the city of Ephesus was, and the people there were, um, it was somewhat of a foreign concept. Now, in light of chapters 1 through 3, humility um, has a, a number of certain marks, okay? So first of all, humility is our ability, first of all, to see ourselves as God sees us. 
or put it differently, to see yourself as God sees you. Do you see yourself as God clearly reveals you? Remember chapter two, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Is that true? Am I really that dead? Am I really that wicked? Was I really that alienated from God? And God's answer to that question would be what? Yes. And that's why it's important here to say, you know what, I can be humble by seeing myself as I really am, as God sees me. I was once dead. I was once alienated. Now I have become his workmanship or the church, those two illustrations he used. But that was all because of what God did through his son Jesus Christ. I don't get any accolades for that. I'm simply the recipient of God's favor in all of that. So humility recognizes how God sees me. Secondly, humility is my ability to be willing to accept God as my authority. My willingness to accept God as my authority. Now, you could say it a little differently. That Jesus is my, what? Lord, master. Now for some who have grown up in the church for years, there used to be this thing where, you know, you accept Jesus as your savior, and then sometime later you, you know, accept Jesus as your Lord, as if, as, it, as if submitting to his lordship was secondary. Jesus is Lord, whether you like it or not. You don't make him Lord, you submit to his lordship. You humble yourself under his authority. So humility is my ability and my willingness to accept God as my authority, as my master, as my Lord, rather than insisting on being my own supreme authority. Again, it is God who made us alive. He's the one that reconciled us. All that we are and all that we have is because of him. The third aspect of humility would be this, that I'm willing to order my life in a, re- in a way that reflects his will at work in and through me. I'm willing to order my life in a way that reflects his will at work in me and through me. So in other words, that God is growing you, that God is using you. Now see, pride would say it's all about me. It's all about what I want. Pride says I don't want this suffering. I don't want this struggle. I don't need this right now. But God says, listen, not only do I want to grow you, but I also want to use you. And how I use you may be difficult, may be a trial may be a suffering. It doesn't change any fact of my love for you. So humility says, you know what, I am willing to do what God wants me to do, or I'm willing to submit to his will at work in me and through me, whatever it might be. So we, when all Christians, listen, when all Christians have this attitude, the body of Christ is eager to serve one another and to submit to God's wisdom and his direction. 
I mean, this is, this is so foundational, and yet this is the place where we battle. But when we fail to be humble, we start to focus on our own needs. We begin to value life based on things and stuff we want, and we end up being alone. We end up being lonely, because when it's all about me, then it's all about me, and I'm fighting in all sorts of different ways for me to be satisfied, for me to be the focus, when humility says it's not me. Now think of it in these terms. Go back to chapter one. Chapter one. I just want to emphasize this again. Chapter one, and notice verse three. Blessed, remember that's a, that's a blessed praise. This is a eulogy, right? Be, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heaven places. You have everything you need. You have everything to feel, might want to say, if you want to talk about feelings, feel valued by God. You have everything. But the problem is pride comes in and squeezes away this whole attitude of humility and replaces it with what I want, apart from what God wants. And God didn't create us to be individualistic. He, he created us to live in community with other people, where God, through the gifts and ministries of others, can provide for you and use you for his glory. And friends, again, our, our American culture has become very individualistic. Okay. I was talking to my neighbor yesterday, not a believer, but attends church every once in a while. Um, and we were just talking. Um, we, he, there was some problem we had with his yard. The water started to overflow and all that kind of stuff. Brought us together to talk. And, you know, we were just talking, and I, I just asked him, I said, you know, isn't it, we, so much we depend on in this world. What if there was, what if there, all the gas disappeared? I mean, there's no more petrol, no more gasoline. Of course, he has an electric car, so <laughs> I, could, you know, I could lean on him. I said, but you know, it used to be that, that people in neighborhoods knew each other. We might now know the pe- person to our right, to our left, front and back, and that's pretty much it. But it used to be you, you knew everyone up and down the street, and you would actually get together and do stuff together. And you may not all be believers, but at least you value the community you lived in. But because of you know, technology and because we have cars now and all that kind of stuff, we just kind of come and go and we do our own thing and we kind of put up our fences and you know, put locks on our doors and all that kind of stuff, and that, that whole attitude is, is, is gone. And I'm not bemoaning an old way t- from a new way. I'm just saying that's the reality of it we are created for community. We're not created to be isolated from people. That's why the body of Christ is necessary as a corporate group. And it was a wonderful testimony. I'll just share this while we're talking about it. You know, he asked me, he said, Rod, I know you were, you were out of work for a long time, and he, he lost his job, and he's out of work, and he's incredibly um, skilled. 
uh, what he does. But he says, you know, how did you, how did you get through that? <laughs> I said, well, you know what? Um, number one, I trusted God. Number two, the body of Christ. And I just shared testimony about how God's provision came through a lot of different people, their kindness and their faithfulness, seeing a brother and his family go through a difficult time. Now, friends, the, the idea there is to say, you know, it wasn't what I did. It's what God was doing. And friends, we need to be people who are willing to be humble. Now, let's, let's press on here because we may run out of time. There, there, there is this wonderful example of humility that comes from the person of Christ. Philippians chapter two, verses five, or verses five and following, here's what it says. Philippians chapter two. Have this mind this lowliness of mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, sorry, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that the Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, was lowly in mind as he humbled himself by letting go of the comforts of heaven. He came to the earth in the form of a man so that he could, hear this, grasp redemption for his children through his bloody sacrifice on the cross. Let go of heaven to grasp redemption. Letting go of his privilege, of his place, of his comfort, to be used by the Godhead for the benefit of you and me. And then of course there's the example of Paul that is right here in this context because in that first verse, in the first line, it begins by revealing that Paul's contentment and satisfaction was true even though he was a prisoner in Rome. He's a prisoner, it says, not of Rome. He's a prisoner for the Lord. This is where God has placed him. This is what God has brought about in his providence to accomplish his purposes for the church. God has brought him to this place to be in prison, but he's there, and he's there to serve the Lord. Acts chapter 20 and verse 19, we, we get a glimpse into some of this. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, says this, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He's talking about all this kind of struggling, all this suffering that he's experiencing, but he did that in humility and with humility. And so the challenge for us as it relates to humility is our own selfish pride. Now, in a few weeks, those young people who are in school will be receiving their yearbooks. You guys remember this. As soon as that yearbook comes, you sit down and you start looking through that yearbook. And what is it that you're looking through the first time you go through that yearbook? What is the main focus of all that you're doing as you're looking through that yearbook? Answer it. You're looking for pictures of yourself. 
They can be big pictures. They can be little pictures. They can be your foot that happens to be showing up in a picture. You claim it all for yourself. Isn't that interesting? That is pride. And my kids go to Redwood Christian schools, and I'm a little involved in some of the peripheral things there. And you know what happens the first time when I open that yearbook? I'm not even a student there, but I'm looking for pictures of myself in that yearbook. That's just pride. Acknowledge it. See, we're, we're, we're so wired to consume ourselves with ourselves. And God's saying, no, this attitude of humility is absolutely necessary for us as we are going to walk in a way that is in accordance with the gospel of his grace. Attitude number two. Attitude number two is gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness, or sometimes translated meekness, has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Vertically, in other words, in relation to God, gentleness is the attitude of a person who submits to God's dealings without regret. They're not angry with God. They're submitting to God. And they're doing that because they understand that all that happens, regardless of the depth of the tragedy or the wrong or the suffering, it's all part of God's providential plan. Horizontally, in relation to man, gentleness submits to human wickedness without revenge. Without revenge. He submits to human wickedness without revenge. To be gentle or meek, then, is to know or have power, but to keep it under control. See, it's very easy for us to get angry because of what God, we might say, is doing to us, or what other people are doing to us or have done to us. But God is calling us to gentleness. That, that, that time when that person cuts you off in traffic and you're like, yeah, I'm going to show him. And, oh, no, you didn't. And you get in front of them, you slow down. You have the power to do all that stuff. But gentleness would say, you know what, I could. And that's my flesh rising up. But I'm not going to. It, it is in control of those passions that rise up during those times. So, it takes great strength of character to be a gentle or a meek person. It is a sign of maturity when gentleness is what comes out of a person when they are being wronged. In the ancient world, um, horses were trained for war and they had to be battle trained to be able to respond um, quickly and immediately and instantaneously under the control of their rider and typically under the control of their, their rider's knees because they were using both hands in the, the midst of combat. And those war horses that were trained to be totally and completely under the control of that rider were called meek horses. That's how that word was used in that context. All right? So, so God here is, is, is calling us 
in light of the context of who we are in Christ, not to use that as a weapon, but to use that as a means by which we, we, we gather our, all of our emotions, all of the things that we're struggling with, and we gain new perspective about the situation. Yes, what that person did was wrong. No, what God is, is, is allowing or doing in my life right now is not because he hates me, but it's part of his providence to accomplish his good pleasure. And so I'm fighting these, these things that are rising up in me with the reality and the truth of what he has revealed about himself, about what he's doing in and through me for his glory so that I can make sense of what I'm going through now. Now, and so that I can step back and be gentle. So gentleness or meekness has been understood to be power under control. Now, we have the example of Christ again. Paul talks about Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1 as being meek and gentle. So the Lord modeled this gentleness for us. When people rejected him, he didn't become bitter, but we're told, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And we know, we know the power that he could harness. The one who created the world could have brought judgment on people then, but he harnessed that, it was under control. When he suffered at the hands of the wicked men, Jesus prayed, forgive them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he called on people to lean on him, here's what he said, Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I would say this. We are very thankful for gentle people. In fact, gentle people are very attractive in the sense of approachable. They're the kind of people you go to when you need help, you need advice, you need to be blatantly honest, you need someone to give you counsel and direction. Gentleness is a quality that is critically important for maintaining unity in the body of Christ. There's also the example of Moses. My studies, I'd forgotten about this, but was drawn back to it. Gentleness or meekness is not weakness, as some people say, and Moses would be an example of that because he is described as being meek. Numbers chapter 12, verse three. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Power under control, strength that is harnessed. So Moses was far from a weak man, he was a very strong man, so strong that he was willing to, to go outside of his comfort zone for the glory of God and stand before Pharaoh and say repeatedly, let my people go. It wasn't because he was a bold kind of guy. It was because he was gentle and meek. He was willing to submit himself to God's purposes and saw that to be true. So 
Now, this idea of, of, of gentleness for us, some exhortations for us. We are called to be gentle. That is what the church is called to be in the context of the church. That's what's going on here in Ephesians. Secondly, we're, we're called to be gentle in the context of the world. Titus chapter three, verse two says this, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Again, gentleness is not just confined for the church, it's also an attitude that should be, uh, uh, should be exhibited in our context, in our interaction with the world. It is also something that is to be found in the context of spiritual maturity. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. It's part of the pursuits of the man of God in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 11. It's part of your character in Philippians chapter four, verse five, where it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The idea there of reasonableness is that your interaction, your response is fitting for the occasion. It's the same idea as this gentleness. And this can relate to the timing of things that you say. You may have something really important to say. You actually may need to confront someone or, or come to them and give them a word of, of, of counsel but the issue is, is your timing good? And a gentle, a gentle person is gonna be mindful of those things and consider the best place and the best time to be able to give them a hard word that is from God. It's speaking the truth, how? In love. That's what a gentle person does. So it's also found in the context of restoring an unbeliever, so not an unbeliever, an, a believer who has been overtaken in a fault. And that's Galatians 6.1, where it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, and it's not talking about the elders, it's talking about those who are believers, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then it goes on, it says, considering yourselves. What if you were the person that was overtaken in fault? Have you ever sinned? Yeah. What if you were somehow, you know, in a moment consumed with sin and you needed people to come and confront you with the sin. How would you want them to come to you? You would want them to come if you were you know, a true believer and wanted to honor God. You would want them to come. You'd understand they would need to come, but you would want them to come in a spirit of gentleness. And that, friends, would produce restoration for that person. So, friends, gentleness is a is a key attitude for the body of Christ and it's a key attitude for unity in the body of Christ and it's brought out here by Paul saying, listen, it is rooted in our awareness of who God is, what he has done, and who we are now in him. The third one is patience. Patience. Patience, like gentleness, has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Vertically, in relation to God, patience is believing that God's timetable is good, no matter what it is, right? Whether you're you know, standing at an airport just missing your flight, um, or you know, whether um, you've got to preach a sermon but the printer's broken down, um, or... It could be a number of different things that might relate to your specifics. I mean, for many of you that have children, it's like, oh, it's time to go to church, and you're walking out, and you know, one of the kids has an accident, and you have to go back in and change it all up, and that's life. Okay, life is like that. 
And so patience lives under the context of, of God's sovereign purposes in his timetable, even to be providential over one of your children falling and spilling his drink all over his shirt on his way to church. Now we might be tempted to pray, Lord, please give me patience, but could you please hurry? Okay? Now some examples of, of patience from scripture, we want to consider Abraham. He received God's promise that he would have land and many descendants and a blessing, but he had to wait many years to see those promises fulfilled. And um, Hebrews chapter six, verse 15 says this, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He he was patient, it took time. And, And friends, listen, God's promises are not always immediate for us. And God's promises are sometimes distorted by our desire for what those promises might be. We, we backfill them with our meaning as opposed to God's meaning. But we need to just trust that his promises are true. And just wait patiently according to his timetable. Consider Noah, who, who listened to God's instructions and faithfully worked on building the ark for over 100 years. Now the, the thing that to me is stunning about Noah is um, what's rain? You want me to build a what? Anyone here, guys, anyone here have a project that is taking you years? I should ask the the ladies. Ladies, any of you guys have projects that have, yeah. And you kind of get to a place where you're like, you know, is this worth it anymore? Can you imagine a hundred years of that? And then trying to chase down that emu and, you know. And yet he was patient. Patience is therefore waiting for God to act when, where, and how he chooses. Now that's a kind of a vertical understanding of patience. There's the horizontal aspect here too in relation to man. Patience as John Chrysostom explained, means to have a wide and big soul. It is the exercise of of a wide and big soul that can endure the annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. It is the the long suffering that God extended toward his children in the Old Testament. Oh, he endured their complaints. He endured their wandering away, their unbelief and they're worshiping of other gods, but he was long-suffering with them. And in the same way, we're, we're to be long-suffering with other people who try to hurt us or complain about us. So it means that we don't respond in bitterness or in gossip, but we wait patiently and seek to love that person. Now, friends, there's also a connection between patience and suffering. Romans chapter five, verse three. Turn there if you would. This is worth you turning and looking and seeing. When the believer prays for God to teach them patience, the answer to that prayer request may come in the form of suffering in various forms. Romans five, three, in the middle of the verse there, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. 
I want endurance in my life. I want patience in my life. And God is saying, that may very well come through the avenue of suffering. And those of you who have gone through the avenue of suffering and have been fashioned and shaped in your character by it would likely say, I don't ever want to go through that suffering again, but I'm thankful for what God did through that suffering in fashioning and shaping my life for his glory. So there's, there's this connection between patience and suffering, and patience, again, then, is, is humbling myself, submitting myself to God's timetable, no, no matter what it is, and knowing that his timetable is good. And so James puts it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith produces, and he calls it, steadfastness. So there's this relationship here to suffering that is important for us to recognize. And then there's this last word, this last attitude. And it's the attitude that I'm gonna kind of bring down into one word, it's the word forbearance, forbearance. And forbearance refers to the kind of response God asks of us when we are the recipients of uncharitable words or actions of others. It's our willingness to put up with something or with someone in a spirit of love. The person forbearing has room in his or her love to accommodate the mistakes and habits of others. It is the idea behind the words of Peter where he says in 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love, what? covers a multitude of sins. Listen, in this gathering here, there are going to be people who do things that bother you, in case you're wondering. But forbearance is the attitude that says, I'm gonna put up with that, and I'm gonna love that person in spite of that ongoing whatever it is. So we show our love by being tolerant with one another. I do not mean the contemporary idea of tolerance, I mean the biblical idea of tolerance. We're putting up with one another. It's our desire to take people as they are not trying to make them like ourselves. And that's part of the challenge. We want everyone to conform to our likes, our passions, our desires, our interests. But there may be some people, and you may not know this, but there may be some people who do not like the things that you like, are not passionate about the things that you're passionate about, could care less about the kind of hobbies that you have. But that doesn't mean that they don't deserve your love and respect and that they are not just as viable a part of the family of God as you are. And so forbearance is this way that we, we embrace one another. And although we've all been created in the image of God, we are still extremely diverse. All of us are affected by our upbringing. And I do not mean to be Freudian in that statement. 
We grew up somewhere. We went to some school. We were fashioned by the place that we grew up and the schools that we were raised in and the families that we had. We also all bring to our place right now some cultural heritage. You know, some of us here are from the Philippines, some from India, some from England or Israel, some from Michigan, some from Russia, some from, go down the list. And God brings all those cultural things together in his body. (laughs) And there's gonna be different ways that we do things, different things that we eat, different ideas that may seem a priority that flow out of our culture, that interfere with us being the culture, that is Christ's culture. And we need to recognize to be a little bit careful and forbearing to one another in that. And then sometimes we simply have bad habits that others around us have to endure. So a few weeks ago, I attended the Together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and the guys joining me were really excited about going. Um, but they were really uncertain about one thing. There was a question going around, who was gonna room with Rod? (laughs) Now, why would that be such a difficult question? Is it because I'm so intimidating? I don't think so. Is it because I'm extremely annoying? Possibly, and this is not the place for audience participation. (laughs) Is it because each of them really wanted to be with me and so they were fighting each other to make sure that they, they got their place, you know, because somehow I, you know, I, I don't know, things radiate from me that maybe they wanted to kind of catch on to. I don't think so. It was because when I go to sleep, the whole world around me knows it. There are no decibel levels that can record my snoring. I fall asleep and immediately Now, I have my own take on all of that. I believe that it is a gift from God for my family to know that dad is home and all is safe because I can hear him, he's lulling me to sleep. <laughs> well, I think I saw some money exchange hands. Some backroom deals were going on. I think I even heard the, JD, you're the intern, you have to do it. I think that was going on there. Um, but eventually one person was willing to be the sacrificial lamb for the team and willing to put up with the annoyance of something that I really don't experience. I, I sleep well, you know? Um, now, I, I share that, and I, I, I know there's a humorous side to that, but how easy it is for us to jockey and shuffle because of people's strangeness, annoying attitudes and behaviors, and, and we can be very ungodly in our lack of willingness to be forbearing to one another. Now I realize my snoring could be horrible for someone staying in my room. And that's why I don't mind laughing about it. All right? But there are other things that people do that could be 
very similar to that, that people, you know, that you're just trying to avoid someone rather than saying, listen, they're part of the family of God. They are my responsibility because they're God's people. And it may be difficult for you, but this is where you go to God and say, God, give me strength to allow my love to cover whatever it is that just is a struggle for me. I can't give you a definition of okay? But you know, you just fill it in with that thing. God is calling us to be forbearing. Now, I want to bring this all to a close here with really two concluding thoughts that flow right out of all we've looked at here, okay? We're going to step back, and we're going to focus on two things here in the next five minutes or so. I want to emphasize here, first of all, the importance of theology. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes um, to your mind when you think about God. If you don't think about God, then you don't have a theology of God. And so the important thing here is that we understand that what we think about God is foundational to our living. And what God says about himself and how you fit into his plan is foundational for us to understand how we are to live our lives. So without theology as our foundation, we will walk in a manner that pleases us rather than in a manner that is worthy of our calling or his calling on us. So this, friends, is an appeal to love theology, but hear this, not for theology's sake. It's not just a, I want theology because I want to know all the facts and terms and all the different things about God. No, I, I want to, to appeal to you to love theology for the sake of your soul's growth in Christ-likeness. You will not grow the way God wants you to grow if you say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians or chapters 1 through 11 of Romans or chapters 1 through 2 of, of Colossians, I'm just going to skip to the good application stuff. You will not grow. And the reason you will not grow is because you will seek to do all the things that God says that he wants you to do without the power and the understanding and the foundation of all the theology that was laid before those applications were given. And so the reality is, friends, so much of the time, you can go to a church that says, we want to be practical. We want to talk about the practical things in life. So they'll jump in a study of Ephesians at chapter 4. Because 1 through 3, that's just hard theology but you can't understand the rest of it without it. And you can't live your life for the glory of God unless you grasp the theology that is the basis for these ethical things that come out of it. So friends, I want to appeal to you. Don't think of theology as being something distant that only pastors do. Theology is something that we all should do. And don't be afraid of the word. It seems so daunting and big and hard. It's not. It's just knowing God and knowing what God does and how he does it and knowing how I fit into all of that. Then, based on that, boom, I have a greater understanding of how he wants me to live. If I don't, then I am, the, the tendency is going to be some form of legalism 
that seeks to embrace these ethical things that are going out there or applying them improperly. So we need the well of theology to be the source of nourishment for our practical living. We need the well of theology to be the source of nourishment for our practical living. Secondly, the importance of attitude. These attitudes should be the first questions we are seeking to ask ourselves when we're facing conflict or dealing with difficult people. Am I being humble in this situation with this person? Am I being gentle? Am I being patient? Am I being forbearing? Let's put this in more practical terms. Are these attitudes present in your marriage? Are they there in your parenting? Are they there in your interaction with others? Are they there in your, uh, as you disciple others? Are they there as you are being discipled? Are these attitudes there as you interact in a home group or in a small group setting? Are they there as you serve side by side with brothers and sisters from other churches? Are they there as you do missions work? Are they there as you share the gospel? You know, we're planning on going to Bolivia and it's, it's very easy for us to think, you know, we're going to Bolivia. They need us. To go and stake our flag, to come back and say, See what we're doing. Or we can seek to say, God, we simply want to be used. And look at the connections that we have and say, we know someone in Bolivia and this person's asking for help. What kind of help do you want? Well, could you do this? I think we could do that. Let's try and work on that together. And it not be about, listen, we've got it figured out. We're, we're in the trenches together. That's what's wonderful about what we're doing there is saying the word of God is the word of God. We're just all together trying to, to see what it says and see how to apply it. So these attitudes, hear this, if embraced, are the solution for so much of what we struggle with in life. If you've got conflict in your marriage, look at these four attitudes first. And then if you still have trouble, give me a call. The problem is oftentimes we don't embrace these things to be true. And then the last thing is this, and I'll just be really, really, be really brief, the importance of unity. I'm not gonna say too much here about this because next week we're gonna focus on that. But all of these ring out, the importance of being one, the importance of being the one that God has called us to be. Rooted in theology, expressing attitudes that flow out of that theology that glorify God, which results in maintaining the unity of the Spirit in this bond of peace. Lord, help us today as we seek to embrace and apply and consider your word, which allow your Holy Spirit to work in us and to fashion us and to shape us, Lord, in, in such a way that we are moving down the path of growth in Christ-likeness. Lord, we desperately as a church want to be the kind of church that you've called us to be. 
Lord, help us not to look at the example of churches around us, but Lord, help us to look at the word of God that reveals to us what a church should be like, what's important, what you value. And then Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do, both individually and corporately for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.